You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey y'all, it's Bridget here. We are honored to be powered by the women winemakers of Banshee and Ferrari Corona at the Food Network's New York City Wine and Food Festival. This is a star-studded four-day event showcasing the talents of world-renowned chefs, wine and spirit experts, and so much more. The served up team will be in the middle of the action. Stay tuned for a look behind the scenes and in the moment Instagram live at the Food Network New York City Wine and Food Festival. I had the honor and pleasure of chatting with my friend, Aaron Gregory Smith. Aaron started in restaurants to get through school and he became inspired by the sense of community that can grow in a well-managed hospitality company. His commitment to opening his own restaurant at 24 got him the keys at 28. He's operated as the managing director for five years before accepting his current role as the first executive director of the United States Bartender Skill. So sit back, relax, grab yourself your favorite cocktail, and listen to Aaron as he shares his journey in the beverage world. Aaron, I am so excited to welcome you to Served Up the Podcast, brother. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm really, uh, really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you today. Absolutely. Can you tell our listeners how you got your start in the beverage community? Sure. Um, I guess my first hospitality job was like a 24-hour coffee shop, and I worked at the graveyard shift. Um, and uh, that was really fun um, because we got to deal with rushes. You know, we had the dinner rush, and then we had the bar rush um, after uh, after the bars closed. And this was in San Antonio, uh, Texas. So. Um, the bars closed there at two o'clock. And so we always had a, had a nice little rush from two to three in the morning. Um, and then after working that job, I went to, um, I actually started working at Starbucks and, uh, that's where I probably learned, um, this was back 1999. Um, so Starbucks had real espresso machines at the time and actually was in, in quite an expansion mode because they did exceptional training. And, um, that was probably where I had my first interaction with tasting. So they did a they do a lot of training in tasting different coffee varietals and then comparing the tasting notes from African coffees to Indonesian coffees and Latin American coffees and that's where I started to develop a palate was actually through coffee. Worked for Starbucks for a while and then uh, in, in still in San Antonio I also did some casual fine dining um, uh, service in uh, in a restaurant there and then my best friend and I jumped on a Greyhound bus and moved to Seattle. And uh, she uh, transferred with a job at, uh, at the Gap, and I figured I could wait tables anywhere. So we moved uh, to the Starbucks motherland in, um, 
in Seattle, Washington, um, and actually both got jobs at a youth hostel. So we had we had moved there to work at a uh, to volunteer for a nonprofit um, and do an AmeriCorps program. And then uh, while we were doing that, um, we had we stayed at the Green Tortoise Hostel and uh, um, and ended up getting jobs there as well. So that's sort of uh, the short end of of kind of uh, or kind of the broad base of my hospitality experience before I got into uh, more specifically into uh, into restaurants and, and restaurant management. So very diverse coffee shop to real coffee to uh, to casual fine dining to a youth hostel. Um, and all of those things really contributed to um, a very different styles of service. Uh, but I got to see the I got to see the similarities in all of them and um, and the differences and and um, and then kind of chart my own path. You know, Starbucks teaches you a lot about efficiency and about movement and about sharing space with another person, um, very directly related to bartending. Uh, and then um, casual fine dining. Our, our management staff have been uh, working at the only five uh, four-star restaurant in San Antonio. So they had uh, great de- attention to detail and did fantastic training on that. Um, the coffee shop taught me volume uh, as well as like how to be in a neighborhood. And then at the youth hostel, we, I ended up being a tour guide a lot of times for people who are traveling internationally. So knowing the local community, being able to connect people to experiences locally, um, I brought all of that into, uh, into bartending, all of those varied experiences. I love that. You know, something about Starbucks, I think that is so interesting is that you can go anywhere in the world and get your order and it tastes just like you get it at home. You can't say that for a lot of bar chains, a lot of restaurant chains, for a lot of bars, even if I go on a Monday and then I come back on a Wednesday, right? And order the same cocktail, a lot of times it's not consistent. So I think it's wonderful because they really their training program must be outstanding as far as being consistent for the customer. It is. It is. And they've, they've adopted more technology over time. Um, and so a lot, some of it is more automated now. Um, but you still have to really understand. I, I, I haven't been through the program in more than 20 years, so I'm not sure how, how it is now. But they are so, the product is so consistent. It kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just amazing. Okay, so take us from where you got this amazing foundation and it really is, it's so unique, you know, really all those things that you need, all those touch points that you need in hospitality to really bring you in to the world of bar and restaurants. Whereas we know it's something you're either going to love it or you're just not because it is so incredibly aggressive and not always so friendly either. Um, so can right. you give us, you know, that part of your story? Where yeah, did you start? Like How what, did you start and why? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I took that first job at the coffee shop because um, I had moved into my own apartment and um, I didn't have a whole lot of money. And at least I would get a meal at the end of the training shift as opposed to waiting two to three weeks for my first paycheck. <laughs> so um, that was really where it started. And then I just um, I just fell in love with the culture of the staff, like the the team atmosphere, the sort of family environment. There were women who worked in that restaurant for 30 years. Um, I was trained by people who had worked in the same place for 30 years that knew the names of every regular customer that knew exactly, you know, to the second how long and how well side work needed to be done. I was I was trained by people who were lifers. And so when I realized that so many people had had sort of built their lives onto this work, onto this job, 
um, and had been able to live it and live it, uh, you know, successfully. So there, um, I, I realized like there was potential there. So I, I go back sometimes to San Antonio. I still see some of the same servers that I worked with in that restaurant still to this day. And that was, gosh, 24 years ago. Um, and some of them are still there uh, working breakfast every day. So that was probably what, you know, was like uh, food, you know, one of those core basic needs <laughs> brought me in. And then I really got attracted to the teamwork, to the family environment and, and to the lifelong commitment that, that people make to it. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that I, I moved to Seattle and I worked in a couple of places there. Seattle, um, you have to be 21 to wait tables and, um, and bartend. If you are in a restaurant that serves alcohol in Texas, uh, you actually can serve alcohol at a table at 16 and, um, or at the time, well, it's going to change now. I live in California now, so I'm not up to speed on it. Uh, you can wait tables and serve alcohol at 16. You can bartend at 18. Um, and so it was a very different world in Seattle. Um, you know, you have to have a, beverage alcohol and food service permit. You know, so I got to know a little bit about uh, those regulations. And um, I worked at a cup at one sort of locally owned and managed restaurant um, that was sort of a philanthropist project. It was a vegetarian restaurant in Seattle. And then um, because I always like to have two jobs, I, I like to be able to balance between two places and um, be able to work as much as I wanted. And uh, I also worked at a um, more of a national chain uh, that also had exceptional training. And it was there that I did um, my first bartender training. And so I was probably 21. Mm. And then um, I also picked up shifts at a private club <laughs> in, in Seattle as well. And, uh, and, and did some bartending, some event bartending there. Um, pretty shortly thereafter, I was promoted to management. So I was okay. a manager at uh, 22 and started... Um, Started managing restaurants that, that in, this was in the in the chain restaurant, and, um, and it's a franchise, sort of a local locally owned franchise. So the owner was present and, and, mm-hmm. and around and had a very strong accounting background. My management training came in an operation that was very focused on accounting and uh, running running good numbers and um, managing costs very very carefully. I did because it was my first management job. I did not realize that that was rare. Um, I didn't realize that that experience wasn't, uh, that that knowledge wasn't widely distributed across right. other restaurants and bars. So I was very fortunate that I got to carry that with me into my management career later. Well, let's talk about that. So, I mean, we're just really kind of yeah. scratching the surface here. So where did, what happens next for Aaron Gregory Smith? So um, living in Seattle, I uh, decided uh, one of my colleagues, one of my coworkers, who is a, one of, a, a manager as well. Um, had decided to buy uh, a franchise in the same company and was like, hey, if that guy can own a restaurant, why can't I? And so I started thinking about, you know, at the, at the age of 24, after a few years of managing, started thinking about what skills gaps I had, what experience I needed to be able to open my own restaurant and manage it myself. Um, and so one of the areas that I didn't really know about or, or um, feel confident in was actually in cooking. And so I um, applied for and enrolled in culinary school in San Francisco uh, and moved to San Francisco to, uh, uh, to attend culinary school. While I was waiting for culinary school to start, I got a job uh, with a chef uh, operator here in San Francisco um, named Loretta Keller. Uh, she had worked with Jeremiah Tower at Stars, had been the chef de cuisine there. She had um, done much of her stage with Susan Spicer in um, in New Orleans, and 
was uh, had a restaurant that was uh, very successful, about 12 years old. And um, I had gotten the job because a friend of mine was a wine distributor and she introduced me to the GM. So I was hired at this restaurant and um, to run food, wait tables, you know, kind of entry level. And that's where I really started to learn about uh, a sh- how a chef run man, a chef run restaurant is different from, from a place that is, you know, more of a, of a chain restaurant or, or a franchise or something. It is completely different. Menu. Yeah. You're talking very, very different. oranges. <laughs> yes. And I loved it. I loved it even more because of how much passion was in the, in, in the food and in the commitment to service. And um, it was uh, just an amazing restaurant foundational here in, in, in the Bay area. Um, so I mentioned to Loretta that I was going to, I was going to be going to culinary school and she said, don't waste your money <laughs> um, she said, for two reasons. One, she said, if you really want to learn to cook, um, I'll teach you for free. And second, I really think that your skills belong in the front of house. <laughs> um, so that, uh, you know, I, I just said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take your advice. You've been doing this for a long time and I have a lot of respect for you. So maybe I won't go to culinary school here. And, um, and, uh, and she knew a lot better, uh, more about what culinary school meant. And, and, and so I, um, and she knew that, you know, my goals ultimately were ownership. And I don't think um, that was necessary, you know, that was not a necessary step. Worked with Loretta for, uh, at Bizu for a while. And then she decided to close Bizu and actually launch a new concept in the same restaurant. And I had, always wanted to do a restaurant opening. That was something that I hadn't learned yet. And I knew I needed to, to run my own restaurant. And so at the staff meeting where she mentioned, she told us all that she was closing Bizu and opening a new restaurant. She asked all of us if anybody who wanted to apply for the new place to let her know. And so I, uh, I set a meeting with her and told her that I'd be happy. I would love to work in the new restaurant. And if she wanted me to start as a manager, uh, you know, as a as a manager, I would. I'd be happy to have the experience. And um, and she said, okay. Uh, since the restaurant was going to be much more bar forward, and I had bartending and management experience, she asked me to dodge with a friend of her at a friend of hers restaurant that had a very popular bar um, and during the during the closure period. So um, I went through bartender training actually at the Slanted Door in San Francisco. And and for for those who haven't. Um, Great. Uh, uh, haven't heard about the side of door. It's a pretty phenomenal program at the time. Mm-hmm. It was being managed by Thad Vogler. Um, and, and he had me stodge with his lead bartender who was Eric Adkins and Eric was running the bar most recently while the, when the bar, the restaurant was open, it's currently closed right now. Um, <laughs> temporarily closed, uh, for, for the pandemic. So I trained with Eric Adkins over the, the closure period. And then when we reopened, um, I was a floor manager and also kind of helped uh, behind the bar. So I would say that, that that taught me a lot about the chef-run restaurant. It taught me a lot about doing an opening um, in, a, in, in a very competitive market of San Francisco. Um, and I, I learned uh, at, the, at the time, most of the, the cocktail bars in San Francisco were, and this was 2004, 2005, all of the cocktail bars were attached to restaurants. So this is really where um, the cocktail movement was happening in San Francisco was in uh, at the Slated Door, at Absinthe, where I also worked during the closure period. Uh, Nopa opened around this time. Um, this was free bourbon and branch, free rye bar, um, before any of those standalone bars with cocktail programs opened. So um, that's where I really started to get to know the cocktail community and, um, uh, and started meeting people from, from other restaurants. One of the first people that 
uh, one of the first bartenders that was hired uh, for the opening, we had Ian Scalzo, um, who is now an owner and operator of a of a bar here in San Francisco um, called Horse Feather, uh, and then also Scott Baird, um, who was part of the Bon Vivants, open trick is a an, uh, an owner of Trick Dog, um, and a phenomenal bartender. So Scott and I became pretty close uh, as we worked together, and actually became roommates uh, after a time, and. Um, I kind of decided that I was ready to take a break from managing. I wanted to open my own place someday. Um, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that with as much time and commitment managing as managing took. So I wanted to take a little break, enjoy my, enjoy my mid twenties a little bit, and then, um, you know, start putting things in motion to, uh, to open my own restaurant. So I resigned from Coco 500 and took a job at Rybar, which had just opened. And this is a, this was one of the first standalone cocktail bars. The owners uh, operated two, uh, had owned bars, John Gasparini and Greg Lindgren. Uh, they owned bars, two other bars in San Francisco at the time. And Rye was their third and their first, their first that was really cocktail focused. And uh, John and Greg were both founding members of the San Francisco chapter of the United States Bartenders Guild. Uh, they used to host a monthly cocktail competition at Rye on Mondays. And um, I didn't work Mondays, but normally it was a one bartender night and so they needed a second bartender. So I would, I would come and work um, on Monday nights and and be the extra bartender when they had these USBG cocktail competitions every Monday. And I thought it was the weirdest thing in the world, to be honest. I was like, who are these dudes and ladies um, that come in once a month and create these cocktails and, uh, and, and compete with each other for, you know, sort of the honor of, listing a cocktail on a menu and what are all of these, who are all these USBG people? So I, uh, in, in working at Rye, um, I was pretty much trying to enjoy, you know, in, enjoy my life, have, have a, have a personal life. And, and I, I stayed sort of arm's length from the USBG for a while, although I started to get to know people and, um, and recognize them and started to see a whole lot of value in that community that was being, that was built there. And, uh, and so working at Rye, I did that for a few years, you know, maybe picked up shifts in a few other places here and there over time. And then Scott and I got back in touch and decided to see about putting together a business plan for our own bar and restaurant. And, uh, um, so we started looking for investors. Um, this is Scott Baird, who I worked with at GoCo 500. And, uh, we started looking for investors, started looking for locations and then, um, we were pretty close to finding like a primary funding source. And um, we went to a meeting and, and we're at a location and, and the meeting just didn't go well. You know, like the, the, the person that was going to be investing just had, a, had no hospitality experience, but had a lot of ideas about how a great restaurant could be. I felt like Scott and I really understood each other's values when it came to what a good restaurant and bar was going to be. And and sort of being dependent on this third person that had funding was just uh, didn't feel like it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I went to work after that meeting and I, I sat down with my, um, with my boss at the time, uh, John Gasparini, and was just sort of venting about the meeting and how it didn't go well. And he said, um, you know, we are actually, John, Greg and I are actually looking for partners uh, to come in and re got to be the operating managers of Romolo, which was their first bar, 15 Romolo. It opened in 1998. And so um, I 
uh, had only been there once, I think, in all of the time that I worked at Rye, because it was in a neighborhood that I didn't often go to uh, in North Beach. And so um, I mentioned to the Scott, and uh, when I got off work uh, one night, we just went up to check out the bar and sat there and uh, and scoped it out. And, and uh, then wheels kind of got in motion. We pulled funding together to buy into the bar as uh, minority partners and operating partners. And then we started operating a few months later and then we closed and remodeled and uh, relaunched the bar in, in 2009. So. <laughs> and we're only up to 2009 is, folks. I'm getting tired just listening to you and your career know, is amazing. And, and can I just say that I think like during that time as well, and, and please, you know, if I'm wrong, but I, I want to say that like San Francisco had more cocktail, like crafted cocktail bars per capita than probably any major city in the U.S. Probably. Yeah. Yes. I mean, New York may have had more in number, but definitely not per capita. No, um, not know, per capita. San Francisco is relatively small community. Um, we punch above our weight. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, yeah, it, it did. It had a, um, a, we had a great cocktail community uh, building here. And um, and so reopening Romolo was really exciting. We just, you know, friends helped us with the remodel. Um, we sort of, we relaunched in the middle of the, you know, one of the other things that um, is kind of crazy about the time, is the, it was the midst of, of the Great Recession. Um, so they were like, you know, the headlines were all doom and gloom and everything's going to be horrible. And, um, you know, uh, 15 Romolo, funnily enough, is the restaurant of what used to be a a boarding house, a Basque boarding house. It's in the it's in the Basque Hotel, and so it has a 16 room single resident occupancy hotel upstairs from it. And at the time, um, uh, we were we were operating both the hotel and the bar. And uh, and so when the with with the uh, headlines being so terrible, uh, we thought. You know, if worse comes to worse, we could just move into the hotel. <laughs> we'll just live at work. Gosh, I, oh I my goodness. Did, I did live there for a little while during the remodel because somebody had to be there, you know, six in the morning and at midnight. Um, right. But we did a lot of the remodel while, you know, we did like the full kitchen remodel while we were still operating the bar. So we would, we would just close. We'd just like board up the, the bar so that it wouldn't get too dusty. We'd spend all day... Um, you know, doing work in the kitchen and then we'd reopen. Uh, so we did that for about three months, did as much as we could do uh, with the bar still operating and then closed for six weeks and, uh, and then, and then reopened. Yeah. It was, a, it was a crazy time. I was lucky enough that I, I, I went to the bar, you know, during those times. Yes. Gosh, I've known yes, you yes. for a long time, man. We've <laughs> known yeah. for a very long time. Yes. I think, yeah. yeah. Gosh. So Romolo, now, like to where I so I operated. I was the the operating partner at Romolo from 2008 to uh, 2016, and um, and I was doing that for many. You know, so I, I was the primary operating partner. I was even the general manager for the first couple of years of that. Um, and in, it was a, I think it was in 2009, shortly after we had reopened, that uh, I think I had finally joined the USBG officially. I think I'd been going to events for a little while and I, I think I finally paid dues or perhaps John and Greg paid my dues. <laughs> I don't quite remember. At those times, there was no website. So um, <laughs> there was nowhere to go and confirm your your membership. Um, and I saw David Nepop had sent an email. He was the, the chapter treasurer at the time. And he sent an email inviting people to um, 
volunteer for a national competition. And since I had worked all of those cocktail competitions at Rye, um, I, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go help out. They could use some extra hands and I've seen enough of these things that I know kind of how they run. But, um, what I didn't know is that national cocktail competitions with the USBG are a very different beast than a monthly local competition. And totally so, different. Um, yeah. Yeah. This was the IBA qualifier. This was IBA method um, competition that uh, International Bartender Association method. Um, Tony Abaganum was going to be uh, one of the judges. So I met Tony. It was hosted at the Starlight Room where Tony had worked previously. Our MC was Bobby G. <laughs> and uh, uh, the competitors, funny group of competitors that year, uh, Ricky Gomez, who was representing the New Orleans chapter uh, and is now in Portland. Um, and I work with very regularly still uh, this many years later. Armando Rosario was representing Las Vegas. Uh, we had Mark Stoddard representing Denver. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember, those are the three people that I still am in contact with to this day, besides Bobby and um, and Tony, who I work with uh, all the time as well. And it was just phenomenal to watch this group of people. I think Julio Cabrera was competing as well um, from Miami. <laughs> yes. So just like a, a superstar cast um, of, of bartenders at this really amazing place. And, and that's where I really started to get to know uh, that there was a national organization, you know, that there was something beyond my local, my local chapter, local chapter meetings. I think uh, uh, Livio Laurel was there as well, who was the president of the USBG at the time. And um, after that event, David, I, so I, I often tell people I, I picked up a tray one time at a USBG national cocktail competition and um, I never went home. And that is really kind of where my USBG national volunteer experience started because um, David asked if I wanted to volunteer for the local chapter after that. Mm -hmm. And um, I did. I did volunteer. I, I became the the vice president of the local chapter. Shortly thereafter, I became the vice president of the National Association and where I worked with you as national secretary uh, when David became uh, national president. And so that was 2010. And uh, um, so I was still operating Romolo, volunteering for the National, uh, the national Association. And then um, our treasurer uh, needed to resign. And so I be became the treasurer for a little while. <laughs> Bridget uh, brought in a, a proposal to start a charity committee of the USBG, mm -hmm. which we launched into the USBG Foundation um, uh, shortly thereafter. And so we started putting together um, the application to start a, a 501c3, which was mm -hmm. you know, founding, a, a founding a 501c3 was really exciting. Um, and we started working with, um, uh, with Chris Bloom, uh, who is uh, uh, remains to this day the counsel for the USVG, and, and that's somebody that uh, that you Bridget introduced us to that you had known. And uh, Chris has been um, a phenomenal mentor and helped us structure so many things. Um, and we really, you know, to get that 501c3 um, sort of you know uh, recognition from the IRS, you really have to get all your ducks in a row. Right. Um, right. And when we did that, it really helped us realize how to do that for the guild too. So really the foundation like led the guild to the place where it could dial things in and, and get really connected. And um, so it was 2012, 2013 that that really started coming together. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like when you look back at the USBG, like just the journey of the organization and, you know, to hear 
to hear from you, you know, how you were introduced, how it led you into like all the roles that are available at the USBG. And we'll talk about your current role in just a minute. Yes. But, But just to be part of that journey, Aaron, and like see like from your own local chapter to what it is today. And it is still a very young organization yeah. compared to some others. It's it's not as old as maybe some others, but it has grown yeah. exponentially. Um, I think it because has. of yourself, because of people like Dave Napole, like um, Kyle McHugh, like there's so yeah. many to be thankful to that have really taken it to, you know, to like the Kim Hasseroods, right? Have taken oh, yeah. it to this oh whole new level. And so can we um, fast forward and talk about what what yeah. are you doing today with the USBG? Well, um, right now I'm the executive director of the of uh, and so chief staff officer um, of is in, in sort of association speak. Um, and what I you know, what we are doing today is, you know, in a lot of respects, still we're sort of in that transition between startups and um, and and operation, we're we're kind mm-hmm. of experiencing this maturing um, of the organization. We could take this a couple of different directions. We could talk a little bit about how, you know, what some of the new, what the most current initiatives are, what some of our most recent accomplishments are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could go any number of directions. What do you think would be um, the most interesting? I think most interesting would be, you know, what are your biggest accomplishments to date? You know, some of the really yeah. positive, amazing things. Because I think a lot of the okay. listeners may not even know what the USBG is. So maybe we start out there. What is yeah. it? Well, and what are some of the cool stuff that it's done to date? And then how do you become a member? I guess the, the thing that I am probably most proud of the USBG for doing is creating an environment where people who are starting their careers in management, leadership, whether it's in a, a, in a hospitality operation or perhaps Maybe they're just starting in a role at, at, at in a, a trades relations role for uh, for a supplier, you know, as a as a local brand ambassador or trade marketing outreach. Um, the the USBG chapters create an incredible opportunity for people to uh, develop their leadership skills. So every single chapter in the USBG has a local board of directors and a and a local council of officers. And those roles are oftentimes the first leadership role outside of maybe a junior management position um, that people are experiencing. And it's really incredible to watch people's careers grow and just accelerate after they've had this opportunity of local volunteer service. Um, and Bridget, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this too. It is, it is a challenge, like no two ways about it. Chapter leadership is an extraordinary challenge. The pressures that you're under from from members, from sponsors, from uh, the community at large to both represent and deliver results is incredible. Like in the, it is a, it is an incredible responsibility. At the same time, it can be a massive accelerator if you to your career if you dig in, you make the time, you make the space, and you make the commitment to fulfill that role to the best of your ability. And I talk about chapter leadership because I'm I'm probably the most jazzed uh, ever uh, right after our national leadership conference, which we just hosted um, at the end of last month. So just a couple of weeks ago. And that leadership conference, I don't know if you remember, but the leadership conference started back when you and I were volunteers on the national board. It was like sort of my, I told David when I, when I ran for national vice president that I had like 
two non-negotiable, you know, that I wanted to get everybody from all the chapters in the same room to talk about where we wanted to go with this organization. And, and then the second thing I wanted to do is work with more craft brands because at the time it felt like everything was very big brands. And so the very shortly after we started volunteering on the national board, we actually did host a national leadership conference in San Francisco in 2011. Um, and that tradition has carried on. We've done it at least every other year since 2011. So we just finished our, gosh, our sixth or seventh one. Um, and we, amazing. Uh, the, it really the is couple, amazing. Um, it's been exciting. And it was, mm. again, the same energy. It was volunteers from all over the country where they are the people carrying the torch and holding the flag for the USBG in their local community. They come and join in with other people who are doing the same thing in their town. And just the magic uh, of the energy that is formed in that space um, and where people are going through the same things that you're going through in this very mm-hmm. challenging volunteer role. Um, and you get to swap stories, you get to um, trade best practices, get to learn a little bit more about how your chapter fits into the entire uh, picture of what the national organization is trying to do. That's what we just came out of. And it was so fun. You know, we had to put these on pause during the pandemic. Um, and so mm-hmm. we had we had hosted our previous one in 2019, and we just got back in person um, a couple of weeks ago. So I would say that that experience is always um, a jolt of great positive energy for me, and I think everybody else who attends, uh, just to see what an impact um, and uh, these volunteers so are having in each other's lives. Mm-hmm. I think so too. There's not um, many places where our community comes together where you really get that one-on-one time. I mean, you can talk like a tales of the cocktail, something like that. But this is something that um, where you're almost in this bubble um, for the leadership conference where you're all together, you are, you're having, you're breaking bread together. You know, it's something very special to be part of. Oh, yes. And um, Bridget was uh, our keynote speaker at our 2019 conference. I was. uh, Pre-pandemic. And uh, um, that is also something I think that's really magical that gets to something is the people who have volunteered for the USBG and then moved on in their careers to do other things, coming back and giving back. Um, Mm -hmm. So like you coming back and being our keynote speaker for uh, for 2019. At this last one, um, one of you know, who I, one of the, one of the people I consider one of my mentees, you know, um, Jessica Taylor, uh, was a chapter treasurer when I first met her, um, at a, re- at a regional conference many, many years ago. Um, and over the years, she just, you know, progressed through the volunteer ranks of the USBG, progressed into, um, incredible, um, roles, uh, becoming a, uh, a professional educator for, of bartenders um, for Southern Wine and Spirits. Um, and and eventually she was on the National Board of Directors, um, chaired our National Education Committee. And Jessica has, tur- has become such a brilliant presenter. Um, over these years, she has been phenomenal. And so she got post position as our first presenter at, uh, at this last conference. And um, she prepared a presentation about finding your personal values and why and and those how those personal values are reinforced or challenged by your volunteer role in the USBG. And it was really meaningful to watch her take this experience and then teach it back um, and and give hold that space for new leaders who were in the same seat that she was in many years ago. My gosh, I love that so much. You know, you really get a front seat. Whether you're at the leadership conference, whether you are in your monthly meetings, whatever, 
whatever role it is, you know, even even an act, as an active member, let's say, you know, to not only to nourish your career and to learn from others, but you really get to watch others flourish. You know, like, like you said something that was really important just a few minutes ago, just, you know, if as a member, you are taking advantage, right, of everything that is around you. I know I, I credit my, my success, especially early on in my career to the USBG. I say it all the time, all the time in interviews or, you know, whatever, when I'm doing trainings, like if you're not part of it, it's absolutely ridiculous, you know, to not be part of it. If you're in this industry and you're very serious about what you're doing, because it is a platform that can really project you into what you'd like to do if you actively, you know, take advantage of all the resources. Yeah, absolutely. And and if it's, if it's something, you know, if, if uh, approaching um, hospitality as a career is something that you want to do, this can be a great resource. You know, I think, um, as we talk about sort of what what's next for the USBG, making sure that the USBG is a is a good value and creates a good space for people who are approaching hospitality as a job too, uh, that maybe aren't approaching it as a career. Um, that is probably our next step, uh, the next step in our development, and making sure that we are making space for people that have maybe more tangible needs uh, about and and getting their work done and and having good quality of life beyond career development especially as we look into, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion um, Mm -hmm. in our organization and what that means for our organization. uh, We have to recognize that not everybody has the time, space, or intention to make hospitality a career. The amazing thing about this industry is that it really is made up of all kinds. It is made up of people who have passions in their personal life that don't pay the bills, you know, and it, this creates an earning opportunity where you can earn relatively high per hour wages in the front of house um, and have a side passion that actually keeps you going. And those people, the, the people who are, who are in hospitality for those reasons, they 100% belong here too. Um, and, and we want to support them and we want to make sure that they have the, the tools and resources that they need um, to, to succeed um, in this as a job, not just as a career, not just as a, stepping stone to, to something else in hospitality. So how do people become a member? Like if our listeners, especially those who are, you know, in the beverage hospitality trade are like, you know what, I would really yeah. like to become a member. Now I really know about this and what it's all about and what it does for people, right? What are my next steps? Well, the timing is um, really compelling. And I know that um, some people will be listening to this asynchronously uh, later in, in time and, and, and that's okay too. We'll cover, we'll, we'll cover your needs as well. Uh, in, in this answer. Um, but right now you can decide, do you want to join? Um, if you are a, an individual um, and you want to join the organization, uh, you're an individual bartender, you're an individual barback host server that wants to become a bartender or is interested in it. Um, if you're a, a bar manager and, and you're looking for a community of, re- of support that you're, you maybe aren't getting at work or, um, or to supplement what you're already receiving at work, you can go on to usbg.org and go to join. Um, it's under under the membership side of things. And um, a, right now, uh, actually, for the month of October, there is a discount if you for for renewing members. But if you're joining, um, there's a you can join, and your dues are paid for all of next year. So if you join now, you're paid through the end of 2023, and it's $125 a year. And then you can either select 
uh, a chapter, the chapter that is closest to you, and become a member of that chapter as well. Or you can choose to be a member at large and join the, um, you know, join the national organization. So that's as an individual. Now, let's say that you are a that you own a small consulting company, um, or that you uh, have a a small bitters company or bar tools brand, or maybe you're even a, a distributor or a supplier um, at, at the smaller, large level. We also, for that matter, if you're a, a, a bar restaurant operator, we do also provide group memberships. And this is something new for the USBG this year. Uh, but if you are a business owner and you'd like to purchase a membership for your business, um, and you may. And so we have two levels, we, or we have two types. We have Guildhouse members, member, group memberships, which are for catering companies, for bars, for restaurants, for hotels, for people who are in um, direct customer service uh, that, that sell to, to consumers. And then we have, um, we have our vendor group memberships uh, as well. And so you can buy those memberships in a package and you know they come in batches of 5, 10, and, and upwards. And, and there's a little discount there if you do it that way. Uh, and this can be a great way to, this can be a great way to reward your staff to, to connect them to the community, to, to form more relationships in your town, uh, in your chapter, as well as introduce them to leadership opportunities outside of your business. You know, as a former operator myself, I can tell you that, that I spent a lot of time organizing activities and, um, and events for my local chapter because my staff could go too. And it was sort of like this compounding effect. Um, if, if I was going to do this really interesting activity anyway for my team, why not open the doors to everybody else and organize it through, um, through the chapter? And I found that, that it did create a ton of relationships. I mean, the bartenders that worked for me at that time have moved on to doing really incredible things either in, in ownership of their own establishments now or in uh, where they're now working as brand ambassadors for different suppliers, working as distributors. Because of the networks they were able to build through that sort of collaboration between us, uh, us as volunteers and, and operators, as well as uh, as well as volunteers in the in in the chapter, um, created a ton of relationships and a lot of work. You know, um, so I found it to be very much worth my time as a as a young operator, and uh, I would have loved to have had this group membership. You know, uh, this group membership for my team at the time. Yeah, a hundred percent. I wish we would have had that back in the day because I can tell you in Chicago, when we started the chapter and people were coming through, there were so many bars and restaurants that would look for, you know, it'd be like a bat signal pretty much on your resume Yeah, that you were a member, yeah. you know? So yeah. I think that that is something incredibly special. It shows that you are very serious, you know, about your career and what you want your career yeah. to be. Can you give us Absolutely. some final thoughts, you know, especially for those who are just entering the hospitality industry? You know, you've had just, you know, such a a long career. And like I said, you've worn every mm -hmm. single hat, every hat I have. you have. Yeah. And so can you give <laughs> those just starting out some advice? Yes, I will say that focused attention to what you're doing is really what matters. It doesn't matter what job you're doing and it doesn't matter what restaurant you're working in right now. Paying attention to the details of what you're doing is where you're going to learn. The great thing about this industry is that it is easy to get into. Um, it doesn't require that you do a ton of outside investment in time, effort, or, or scholarship to learn. 
People are very willing to teach you on the job skills and on the job training, especially when you ask for it and you show that you want to learn. Like there, there are incredible mentors all around you. Um, the other thing I'll say is I think back to the, to some of the women that I worked with that trained me to wait tables when I was 18 years old. And if I, if I walked into that coffee shop now, not having that, having had that experience, I might look at those women and think, Oh, uh, maybe they don't have much to teach me because, you know, I'm the executive director of the, the bartenders guild. I've been a crap bartender at uh, award-winning bars all over the country, but really those women were very wise. And they taught me a lot about attention to detail, about how to be part of a staff, how to be part of a team. And I, I want to encourage younger, newer people in the hospitality industry to realize that every single person who's working in this industry has something to teach you. You don't know what it is right now, and you might not know for a very long time, but treat other people like they're wise. I guarantee you there is a, there is a, a busser or a dishwasher that knows how to stack plates exceptionally well and is really fast at consolidating movements. Watch how they work. Learn from them. Try to implement some of those things um, to your skills. There is a host that is exceptional at matching people, uh, to matching customers um, to the right server that's going to give them a great experience. Pay attention to that. Note like how easy service is when a host that's really paying attention to the details gets it right. Note how uh, that expediter gets food out of the kitchen and keeps the kitchen nice and calm um, and keeps servers with, uh, feeling supported and like they have, um, like they're being listened to. Um, note when you have that person and, and show them appreciation, let them know that you're noticing what a good job they're doing and they will teach you some of their tricks. I guarantee it. Like there are people working with you every single day that are, that are very wise and just learn from that. That is really sage advice, you know, just being open to others. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Aaron. I want to thank you on behalf of the Served Up family for being on the show today. I think we are just scratching the surface here. And so I, I want to invite you back. I hope that you will okay. come back. I'm putting you on the spot. So, yes, I will I come back can. because I think we have a lot, of, like even just on the USBG, like how we got from 2013 to now is big. And, uh, there's a lot there. And um, uh, the other thing I'll mention is maybe a time that we could talk about this is uh, our 75th anniversary is coming up of the USBG next year, 75 years. Well, let's, and let's so we could talk a little bit about this, oh, I love this it. modernization. I would, I would love it. Let's keep everybody on a big cliffhanger. I think that that's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely, brother. It's so good. Well, for now, I want to wish you just a whole lot of great health as we move into this next uh, season. And um, just a lot of peace, Aaron. So thank you so much for being on Served Up. This has really been a treat. Cheers to you. Thank you, Bridget. Hey, Served Up friends, Julie here. I am thrilled to tell you about the 15th annual Food Network New York City Wine and Food Festival taking place soon. October 13th through the 16th for its 15th year. Food Network personalities and more than 400 chefs, mixologists, and wine and spirit producers will come together to create an unforgettable Epicurean experience comprised of tastings, dinners, parties, brunches, lunches, masterclasses, and more. 
100% of the net proceeds from New York City Wine and Food Festival go to God's Love, We Deliver. God's Love, We Deliver is New York City's leading provider of medically tailored meals and nutrition counseling for individuals living with severe illnesses. To date, New York City Wine and Food Festival has raised more than $14 million for its charitable causes. The festival provides a platform for the charity, which has a presence at events through activations and speaking opportunities that help strengthen existing relationships in the food, beverage, and hospitality industry, and also create new ones from on-site interactions. We are so excited to share that the Served Up crew will also be on the ground, bringing you the behind-the-scenes action at the festival. We hope you join us to eat, drink, and feed New York City by purchasing tickets on sale now at www.nycwff.org. And don't forget to follow at Served Up Podcast on all your favorite platforms. And if you're a long-term listener, please leave a review. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.